0: Good morning, good morning. If you have a Bible, we will be in 2 Samuel, chapter 1. Yay, we did it! Yeah, so we were going to go all the way to chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, yesterday at 4 o'clock, I decided that was too much. <laughs> so we're going to go all the way through the end of David's song. So before we do uh, look at 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 27, let's pray to the Lord God together. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you for this day that you have set aside in which we enter your courts to worship you and commune with you and fellowship uh, with you and with one another. We pray, Lord, that you would open this word to us now, that you would, um, as you show us your heart, Lord, in the life of David, we pray that we would um, love you more, that we would, uh, Lord, be drawn to you. The affections of our hearts would be drawn to you. That we would look to you and pursue you, Lord, and adore you more. We thank you and we praise you. In the name of your Son, and amen. Now imagine for a moment, imagine for a moment that a great prize had been promised to you. A great prize. A million dollars, say. Or a house in the Bahamas. Or your own private jet. How would you feel... After a long wa- waiting period of receiving that glorious gift, how would you feel? Now, on the flip side of that, say you were persecuted. You were persecuted cruelly. You were hunted like a dog. You, you, you fled and ran with your wife and your children and your friends, and you lived in the wilderness, and, and everywhere you went, this, this particular person was attempting to kill you. And then imagine how you would feel when you found out he, he had died. How would you feel? Would you feel thrilled? Would you feel joy? Would you rejoice? I have a hard time believing that any of us would not feel anything but a great sense of joy and relief. But what we see in the first chapter of Second Samuel is um, David's response to two things. One, he receives the scepter and the crown that he was promised, that he's been waiting for, and he receives news that the man who was hunting him is dead. And what we see is not rejoicing. What we see is not singing uh, out loud, right, having a big party, slaughtering fat and calf, inviting all of his friends over, opening the bottles of wine. That's not what we see. What we see is mourning. What we see is sadness. What we see is how David responds here is, is, is the exact opposite of how most people would respond. And, and I think what, what is going on partially is that God has said, Yahweh said, I, I don't judge like you. I judge the heart. And this is a man whose heart is after me. And, and what he wants to do now is demonstrate the wisdom of his choice by showing us David's heart. He wants to show us why of all men he chose David. And I think that is what's going on. That is what's going on. Now, what, what, what is interesting all through 1 Samuel is we're not told a lot about how David feels about things. We're not, we're not, you know, he doesn't say much about Jonathan. We're told a lot about what Jonathan thinks about David. We're told what, what Michael, his, uh, David's wife, f- feels about David. But we're not told a lot about what David thinks about these things. It's kind of hidden. His em- inner mo- emotional life is hidden, largely from the reader. And I think it's because this big reveal was coming. God wants us to see what the heart of a true king looks like. God wants us to see what his heart is like. And so he's been saving and saving and saving this emotional outburst, in the sense, of David, until this moment. When it would come at the moment when we would least expect it. Because sin, right, is not something that David, uh, it's not something that he likes. He does not like it. He hates it. He hates death. He hates sin. He hates wickedness. And even though Saul is his enemy, he, he hates sin and wickedness and evil more than he hates Saul. Now, is that true of any of us? Do we hate the things that God hates more than we hate our personal enemies? Do you hate death more than you hate Joe Biden? If you could get rid of death or Joe Biden, what would you choose? Now, I mean, it seems like, what's one and the same? Thank you for making my point. (laughs) Thank you for making my point, right? If we could get rid of our enemies, we'd do it. And when we found out that our enemies were dead, I would find out where the grave is, and I'd dance on it. Um, That is a joke that I've probably made more times than I ought to have in my life. Uh, It's one of my favorite ones. Let's find out where Hitler is buried, and let's dance on his grave, baby. And that is how I would respond if I were David. But that's not what he does. it, It is remarkable how he receives this news. Upon hearing of the death of his friend Jonathan and his enemy Saul, David tears his clothes and assumes a demeanor of grief and mourning. Now everybody um, else, right, thinks what of David? If, if, if I were the Amalekite who comes and brings news to Saul, if I were an Israelite in those days, if I were the Philistines, right? You watch what, what David is doing. He's being pursued by Saul. He goes into the wilderness. He goes into the, um, to live amongst the Philistines. He's raiding the Israelites. He's trying to go to war against the Israelites. It appears a certain way. And the judgment of men is demonstrated in in what the Amalekite does. Because the Amalekite comes thinking he's going to get a reward. Thinking that he's coming with good news that David is going to rejoice in. And it is not news that David rejoices in. Everybody thinks he's some sort of Machiavellian, Trump-like character, right? Who's going to play power politics like most people are going to play power politics. And David isn't. He's not that kind of person. He demonstrates that he is not only ready, but absolutely the right choice to be the king of Israel. God judges the heart, and we judge by the, by the outward appearance, and that is put on display here. Now, when a Christian, father, uh, Christian leader falls, um, how do you respond? When there's, you know, if if we heard of some Christian leader who we know is teaching things that are not exactly orthodox, that has a huge following, that makes lots of money, he gets on the circuit, everybody knows his name, everybody buys his books, when when you hear of that guy running off with the secretary, do you rejoice at such news, right? When you hear of a church down the street that is proclaiming the gospel, even though it's not doing it very well, and it closes, do you rejoice? What is your response when Christians, who you think are wrong, fall? right? It's, it's, it's a similar question. Right? Are we people who are of the household of God, or are we people who are of particular people of the household of God? The fallen condition of God's people disturbs David. He's not just sad about Jonathan, he's sad about Saul, and he's sad for the people of Israel. The same principle should control our life in the kingdom. Do we... Um, do we not have an obligation to mourn over the unbelief and the apostasy and the coldness in the church? You know, what do we do? Do we say, are those people baptized? Are those people baptized and are they in the the covenant? Are they attending churches? Are they professing Christians? And if so, do do we say, that is our house over there burning down. That is our guy over there teaching the wrong thing. Is that what we say? Or do we say, well, he is baptized. You know, he is a professing Christian but he's a heretic, so he's not really of us. That's not who God means for me to be in fellowship with. He means for me to be in fellowship with the Lilias because I love the Lilias, right? That's, that's, where, the, that's where the relationship is. But that dude down the street who teaches out of the New Living Translation, that guy's not of us. And, and what we do is we judge by outward appearances. We judge by the things we like and don't like. I don't like that Bible translation. I don't like that theology. Or what school did that guy go to? Oh, that school. We went to Yale Divinity School. Heretic. How do we respond, not only when we hear of actual enemies being destroyed, how do we respond when tragedy befalls the household of God? All too often we're like, well, that's not really our house. But David responds as if his king, his beloved king has died. But we know the story. Has Saul been David's beloved king? Has Saul treated him justly? Has he treated him with uprightness? Has Saul been an upright, upstanding, holy man? No. So then why does David mourn him? Now, either David is doing something he's not supposed to be, or we're doing things we're not supposed to be. And I'm just going to let you go and think about which is which. This is what it says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? Don't even the people who work at the IRS do that? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Right? Unbelievers, don't they have friends over for dinner? Don't they help their friends when their cars are broken? Don't they do all those things? So why are you better than them? You're just doing what they do. Any decent human being would do these things. What, what makes you so special? What's supposed to make us special, what's supposed to make us the sons of God and the daughters of the Lord is this, that we love those people who hate us, that we love those people who persecute us, that we love those people who are out to get us. The perilous culture prevalent in the church today is found in Luke chapter 18, verse 11. This is what the church is like, Luke 18, 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus... God, I thank you that I am not like, that, uh, like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this guy that works at the IRS. Right? I was just thinking this recently. I, I was already doing my taxes, and I was thinking, sitting there thinking, you know, whoever's going to process this at the IRS, I hope he doesn't sleep well tonight. You know, I, I hope he has a terrible day. I hope he eats something bad at lunch and gets, like, food poisoning. You're like, how do you like that? Because why? Because I've got to sit here and I've got to do all this. And, and I'm, I'm being honest, but I want you guys to stop and reflect for a moment. Right? Do you ever stop and think about this? Do you ever stop and think about, man, the person who's persecuting us. I hope, I hope something happens in Congress where the, where the building just burns to the ground they can't go to work. I, I, they can't even provide for their families. I hope it happens to them. And you're like, you know, that sounds so much like Jesus, Mike. You should go preach that. Because we, we walk around considering who is worthy and who is not based on what they are doing or not doing for us. Whether they please us. And, and, and not only do we do this to people who are outside the church, think of what we do to people in the church. People who are actually anointed of the Lord. Think about it. What is the anointing of the Lord? David is really hardcore about other men who are also the anointed of the Lord. Now, these are kings. These are men who have received a special, right? They're specially set apart. They're holy under the Lord. And so David re, um, is very protective of that. What would be the mo- uh, a modern parallel to that? What, what, right? what anointing did you receive that set you apart as a holy person? A little thing we like to call baptism. Okay, now do you walk around thinking, okay, I am for everyone who's the anointed of the Lord. And, and I'll tell them to their face. Cause, cause did David ever confront Saul about his sin? Yes. Does he rejoice at his death? No. Now, do we confront the anointed of the Lord who are straying? Do we confront their sin? I mean, besides on Facebook, right? We, we retweet something angry about Beth Moore because Beth Moore has gone astray. Right? I, I, when, what, how many angry things have been said about Beth Moore well, what, how many churches led by these pastors who are saying what they, what's true about Beth Moore on Twitter how many of them had a prayer meeting at their church for Beth Moore you want to you guess I don't want to guess I don't want to go there why because that's not. We, we don't care about the anointed of the Lord we care about who we like and we don't like we care who aligns or doesn't align with what we think the Christian life is and ought to be according to us. And we think, you know, God's perfect, and he's the only one that can be perfect. You're not Jesus. Get over yourself. And yet we have a man right here in the middle, middle of the Bible named David who is someone who does really have a heart after God, who really does. He's, he is just a man. And, 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 and he's a great man, don't get me wrong, but he is in fact just a man. He is demonstrating that it is possible to protect the anointing of the Lord, to protect the household of God, to be emotional and, and, and invested in the people of God, whether you like them or not. And, and partially, why we find ourselves in the state we find ourselves in is because we often hate the household of God more than the unbelievers And I'm not joking around. We do. The things that we say, the things that we think, the way we defend or not, the people of God, right? Who needs enemies when you have friends like us? Who needs enemies when you've got these kinds of brothers and sisters? Now, does that mean we should never, ever, ever address error? Does that mean we should not call a duck a duck? If it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, you're a duck. If you walk like a heretic and you talk like a heretic, you're a heretic, but you're my heretic. Right? Why don't we talk like that? Like, think about your own family. Right? Think about your own family. Imagine if you had an estranged brother and he suddenly showed up on your front door. Would you say, go away? Would you say, I don't, I don't know where you've been, I don't know what you've been up to, I don't know what's going on in your life, I don't care? Or would you feel some sense, because their last name was the same as yours, to do something for them? To ask, right? Oh my gosh, it's you. Where have you been? What have you been up to? Come in, sit down. Have, right? and, and, and yet, those who have estranged themselves from the household of God, how do we treat them? Oh, that guy fell? Finally. I was, and then you go on, you know, Christianity Today, and you read as much as you can. Oh, yeah, look at that. Look at all the dirty little details. Right? I'm glad. Finally. That's how we treat these people. And, and is that how Jesus treated everyone in Israel? Is that how David treats Saul? If anybody had the right to hate someone and to rejoice over, the, <laughs> over somebody's death, isn't it David? It's like I can't even imagine what I would be like. David. 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 This is Saul we're talking about. You can smile. It's okay. right? Rejoice just a little. I won't tell anyone. Go in your tent and rejoice there where nobody can see it. I would be a little dumbstruck by this level of magnanimity, this level of grace and love for somebody who he really has no reason to love, except for the fact that they're in the same household, God's household. The state of Israel is not good. The leaders of Israel have fallen. The, the God of Israel looks bad, right? What, what, what did we read was going to happen? We read that the Philistines were going to go back rejoicing to their temples, that their people had destroyed not just the people of Israel, but the God of Israel. The God of Israel couldn't even protect their own king. They're going to go home and, rejo- and rejoice over this because the household looks bad. Right? And what we do when we hear of Christian leaders falling is saying, well, they're not really of our house. And unbelievers on the outside are like, man, do these guys, how, right? do these guys care about what happens to their own people? Now, there was a Roman historian who wrote a nasty letter to other Romans. Okay? He wrote this polemical work. And, and what he was doing was lambasting the Romans. He's like, listen, you guys, listen, we take the kids we don't want and we take them down to the Gehenna, We take them down to the trash heap burning pile and we toss them in there because we don't care about them. Because we don't necessarily want all of our kids. So we have this custom where we do this. And you know what those stupid little Christians do? Those stupid little Christians go down there and take those babies out of the trash heap because they don't even just take care of their own. They take care of our own. Now is that the church in America? What I love about this book is that if you, if you sit down and prayerfully consider what God is telling us in the book of Samuel it demonstrates that we are not who we think we are and it is much worse than we realize because I, I, I was almost sucked into the whole Machiavellian game I was almost going to be like you know, you know how David's been deceptive this whole time look at this deception here where he makes everybody think he cares about Saul and it was tempting to go there because I, I, I am so cynical I don't really believe it. And and what it reveals about us, about you and me, man and woman, adult and child, is that we do not love the household of God like we think we do. We don't even really know how to define it. I mean, how many of you guys would define Saul as a Christian? Wait, but is he? Isn't he? If David if he's not, why is David mourning him at all? Right? Wouldn't David be sinning and mourning somebody who's not really of the household of God? So there's something wrong with our categories, there's something wrong with our affections, there's something wrong with our definitions. What we're going to see after this, what, th- these first two chapters, is we see what the heart of God is for his people. We see what the heart of a true king is. We see what a real father ought to be like, what a real Christian man ought to be like, what a real Christian ought to be like. But let's turn to Second Samuel chapter 1, and let's look at it for a moment. Let's, let's look at a few things, because in order to properly understand this story, there's a number of things we have to work out. There's weird details. Why, who is this Amalekite? And why does the story in 2 Samuel chapter 1 contradict the one at the end of 1 Samuel? Okay, why does he write a song? What is this book that they say they write the song down in? Why, of all things, the first thing David does when he finds out he's the king now is sing. There's a lot of mysterious things going on here, not just his response to the death of of Saul, who you would think he would rejoice over. His mourning is mysterious. The way he mourns is mysterious. The circumstances surrounding it are mysterious. So if we turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1, you see in verse 2, it says that it's on the third day. Now, does that ring a bell to anyone? (laughs) On the third day, this mysterious man comes to give David some news. And he falls to the ground, it says in chapter 2, and pays homage to him. And David says, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. That's weird. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? How does this Amalekite know what happens? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Geboah. By chance I happened to be in the heart of a battle between two nations of which I do not belong. Okay. And there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite, and he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen, and took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Right? So what's my cushy government job now? (laughs) And if you read enough history, if you want a good, cushy government job, what you do is you take the crown and the armlet of of a particular king's enemies and take them, right, take news of his enemy's death to that king and give him the crown and say, listen, your buddy's dead. Now, where's my palace? Right? I'm the Duke of what now? And throughout time, this is exactly how it always works. So what does this guy think of David? What does he think David's going to do? What kind of man does he think David is? He thinks David is a man like you and I. He thinks David is a man like himself. Of course he's going to be rewarded. Now, there's just a couple of things here. First off, if you really ever want to just frustrate yourself with scholarship, I don't don't like to be opposed to scholarship generally, but occasionally it's really irritating. And the amount of nonsense I had to read about why there's two different accounts, one at the end of 1 Samuel and a different one at the beginning of 2 Samuel, the amount of words written about this astounded me a little bit. And nobody, it seems, not very many people, considered the very obvious solution. The dude's lying. Like, I'm sorry, I was born on a Tuesday, but it wasn't last Tuesday. The guy's lying. It's clear that he's lying. And yet, we want to talk about different sources, and why did they edit this this way, and what does this really mean? We know the story. God already told us what happened, and, and let's think back on that story. Did Saul want unbelievers putting their hands on him? No. So why would we ask an Amalekite to do it? Prior to that, how did the Amalekite end up just where the king was dying, in the middle of a battle? He doesn't say, I was fighting for so-and-so, and I just happened to be near where he fell. He said, just by chance, random chance, I was out taking a walk in the park, and bada bing, bada boom, I ended on the beach when there's all these boats coming, right in the middle of D-Day. I mean, I was just out here throwing frisbees with my dog, and now there's this battle. I mean, could you imagine such a thing? Nobody happens by chance to fall into the most intense portion of a battle because also where kings are fighting, right? If you ever want to know um, where to, how to find a king or the the mightiest men of a battle, you go to where all the dead bodies are, and where the most dead bodies are was the most important place. Uh, And this is true. I've been on a number of battlefields in America and Europe where they fought with swords and guns, and it's always true. The biggest pile of dead bodies is always where the fiercest fighting was, where the best men were, or the king was. So it's actually not hard to find a king in a battle like this. And we remember that the Philistines didn't come and plunder things right away. It took them a few days to get there. So there was a window of time where there is just a bunch of dead bodies because all the, all the Israelites ran away and they were terrified. And the birds come out there and start eating the bodies. Like God said, he cursed Israel and he said, this is what will happen to you. And that's what's happening to them. So this Amalekite's like, well, I'm going to go get me some treasure. And he found treasure that was greater than anything he could have imagined. And he is an opportunist guy. So he's like, hey, let's make the most of this. So now what I'm going to do is run 80 miles in three days. Hello? First off, that, that's like, come on. You really want to – got to want it. 80 miles in three days? I can't imagine running 80 miles in three months. Anyway, I digress. He comes to David and he says, look, look, I got the crown that, I, that is supposed to be yours. Everybody seems to know that you're supposed to be the next king. And now what is my reward? And David's reward is he tears his clothes, he cries out, he puts ashes on his head, he, he takes on the office of mourning, and then he says, chop this dude's head off. Now, here's an interesting ethical question. If we know he didn't really kill Saul, is David putting him to death unjustly? Right? And, and this, is, um, this is in policing. It's really funny how it works, you know. Um, if you ever want to get somebody to uh, – if you want to try to get someone to admit to a crime, what you do is you accuse them of a much worse crime than what you actually thought they committed. You're like, man, you killed that guy? I didn't, I didn't kill him. I just hit him. Oh, oh you hit him. Oh, so you were there. <laughs> and the amount of times that this works in policing is amazing. So what he does is he confesses to this crime, right, thinking, thinking that it's going to be okay because David really wants this to happen. But has he actually committed crimes? Has he gone to a battlefield, right, and marred the body of Israel's king? Did he carry the king away, or did he leave him there? And did he rob him, right? This guy deserves death one way or the other. There's some irony in the fact that it's an Amalekite, because the reason that Saul fell originally is because he plundered some Amalekites and didn't put their king to death. And now what you have is an Amalekite who allegedly is putting him to death and plundering him. So the sin that he, right, The thing that Saul was supposed to do comes back to haunt him here in the end. The Amalekites are the the last person that deals with his body, as far as David is concerned, is an Amalekite. Which is, that's what, right, he failed to properly address the Amalekite issue earlier, and this is yet another odd example of if you don't be putting sin to death, it will put you to death. Right? Be killing sin or it will kill you. You deal with the Amalekites the way you're supposed to, or the Amalekites are going to come back to visit you in a much worse way. David sees right through this whole nonsense. He sees that it's a lie. And he knows that this guy deserves death. So instead of honoring this person, all Israel watches him punish this person. Why, right? He, and, and he says, he says um, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? It's verse 14. How, how, how is it that you were not afraid to touch him? He doesn't say slay him. He says touch him. So even if he comes upon the dead body, why are you putting your hands on the anointed of the Lord? Now, do you love the anointed of the Lord that much? Think how much love he has for the household of God that if you go messing around with a family member of mine, you're going to pay. right? Or we hear some secularists making fun of some pastor we don't like, and we're like, oh, you don't know the half of it. right? Put your hands all over that guy. I don't care about that guy. Say whatever you want about that guy. Do whatever you want to that guy. The fact that Saul was the anointed of the Lord, irregardless of what he had ever done, meant that he was sacrosanct. David has demonstrated this. It doesn't matter what he's doing. The Lord has anointed that one. God has saved that person. God has set that person aside. That person is holy under the Lord. And and even though they're doing things that they ought not do, I'm not going to put my hands on him. And I'm going to avenge him. That is a love for the household of God that we could use in this day and age. David is not only demonstrating his love and respect for Saul, he's demonstrating what's going to happen to anybody who tries putting their hands on him. And this is partially how justice is supposed to work. The reason that you put certain uh, put people to death for certain crimes is to actually terrify people from committing those crimes. That, that's one of the functions of the law, is you're supposed to punish people to terrify the citizens from committing the same kinds of crimes. Now, if, I, if, right, if David has all these mighty men, and, and, and even Saul couldn't get, get him, Right? And now he's outlasted Saul. And this is, what he, right? this is what the people who are around David do to those who kill the anointed of the Lord. Do you think you're likely to put your hands on David at this point? It's a great deterrent. Okay? And what this proves, this little story, is yet another way, an interesting way, for God to teach us the lesson that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 12. If you go to Luke chapter 12... Verses 2 to 3. This is what we read there. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. The things that you do in secret, the things that you do that you, right, you think you've avoided the eye of man and thus have avoided the eye of God. And has the sin of this Amalekite found him out? Right? What did he sow? What did he reap? And, and this is a problem that many of us have. We think because man doesn't see us that also God doesn't see us. You think because your parents didn't catch you, God doesn't know anything about this. You think because your spouse doesn't know, God doesn't know. You think because right, the neighbor was tricked by you that God was somehow tricked by you. But that's not how it works. And, and what this story partially demonstrates is true justice. The things that we do in secret will be proclaimed. The things that we do in the dark will be brought to light. And God will not be mocked. And God's justice, even for somebody like Saul, is astounding. Why would God defend someone like Saul this way? Why? Right now what you're doing is you're pitting your judgment against his judgment. He said, this is mine. This is my anointed. This is my king. He is sacrosanct. He goes with my image upon him. He goes with my power upon him. He goes with, in, in the name of the Lord. And whatever, he, right, whatever you do to him will be visited upon you. It, right? And, and, and this is, <laughs> have you ever been, <laughs> I remember being somewhere. It was a Christian conference. And I saw that guy. And I was like, what is that guy doing in here? I thought, what fence did that dude climb over? Certainly that guy didn't come through the door, did he? What kind of people do you have keeping the doors around here? Now, I've been in other situations where you're just, you, you go somewhere, and you know there's a, I've visited lots of churches, and you meet the people there, and you're talking to people after church, and you think, what? How did that guy get in? Like, what kind of people do you let in this church? Has that, has that ever happened to you, or is it just me? This is the beautiful thing about having this microphone. Okay? I'm not hiding anything. It happens. I'm like, who? You just let anybody in here. Now, me, on the other hand, you invited me here because I'm awesome. But that schmo, I don't know how he dug his way in here, but somebody should find out who's the bouncer in this place. Right? If, if, if God saves someone, and they're a train wreck, and he puts, he, he puts the water of baptism on them. He brings them into their household. He's working on them, as, right? He's working on them in ways you can't even imagine. What we, what we want to do is stand in judgment of those people. What we want to do is decide who's in and out. What we want to decide is who is of God and who is not. And what David is demonstrating here is that it's not up to him to decide who's in or who's out. What's up to him is how he responds, how he guards, how he protects, how he addresses because did he not address Saul? Right. I'm not advocating for you just take whatever people do and it's fine. No, he absolutely addresses Saul because Saul is his. Saul is his king, his brother, his a member of his household. Because their God is Yahweh. If we need that kind of defense of the people of God, that kind of love for the people of God, and, and this is what John, right? John, John. The apostle, in his epistles, says what? You're a, Christian if you're, a believer, you're, you're a Christian if you are baptized? You're a Christian if you take communion? Go and read the letters of John. What does he say? It's the love for the brothers. It's the love for the brothers. You are a person, you are a, a member of God's household based on your love for the people in that household. And, and it turns the whole external religiosity thing on its head. You mean I can't just go and do all these things. I actually have to have real affection for these people. But look at who you saved. Look at who's here. Eh. (laughs) David tears his clothes. David puts ash on his head. David is distraught over not only the death of his friend, but the death of his enemy and the state of the household of God. And we could use men and women like that. Now, going forward from here, David, it's, it's actually very beneficial for David. He has the crown, he has the scepter, and he has all these witnesses. He did not go and kill Saul to get them. He did not go out and defile the, the body of Saul to get these things. There is this great testimony now that he is not the one behind the fall of Saul. He is not the one who brought him to his demise. He did not rob a corpse. He was given these things. And what did he do to the person who took them from Saul? He put him to death justly. This is going to matter a lot as David goes here because David cares about the unity of God's people. Everything he's going to do in the next couple of chapters is not trying to just ascend to the throne in might and valor, but he's trying to unite the people of God. And he's doing all kinds of things to demonstrate that he's not out for self. He's out for the household. And this is one of them. See, look, I have these things. And, and the man who brought them to me has now been put to death justly and as he ought to have done. And now let's, let, right? Let, let us now gather around the throne. Let us gather as the people of God. Let us build upon this unity. And so the first thing that he does is write a song. Now, how many of you, if you want a million dollars, how many of you, if you got that great prize that you were waiting for, right? How many of you sit down and compose poetry about it? Write a song about it? And, 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 and what we find is not only the, his emotional state, but how he expresses it. What does is, what is a true king look like? What is the house, household of God like? It, it's full of people who love their enemies who sing. So he composes this song, what, for himself and for his own men about how Saul sucks and he's awesome? No, he composes this song, right, full of grief over the fall of both Jonathan and Saul. And he writes it for the whole household. Right? If we go back, it says, And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said, It should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. Now, what's the book of Jasher? Because he says the the tribe of Saul, but what's the book of Jasher? It was preserved in in, in a book that has been lost, that is referred to as Jasher. Spanning hundreds of years, the book of Jasher is believed to be the hymn book used in tabernacle worship. It's mentioned in the book of Joshua. Uh, I did this way back when we did the series on, uh, I did a short series on the Psalms. And the Psalms are, are compilations of, a, of songs taken from a bunch of different song books that Israel had in its, throughout its history. And the latter prophets, much like they uh, organized the history of Israel, they organized the songs of Israel. And there's a book that's mentioned in Joshua and here. And this is a book that they carried around. And David writes this in there for the tabernacle worship of, worship of all of Israel. It's called the Scroll of the Righteous. And it's referred to, but nobody actually has a physical copy. But it was absorbed into the, into the rest of scripture. Now, a structural feature of 1 and 2 Samuel is the use of verse, of poetry, of song. Near the beginning of the book, the Song of Hannah appeared, which celebrated not only br- the birth of Samuel, but the beginning of a revival in Israel. And now 2 Samuel begins with a song. It's instructive to the kind of king Israel is supposed to have. They're supposed to have a singing king. Israel always had hymn books. They always had what they called a song leader. In in, in the structure of Israel, it wasn't just important to have priests. It wasn't just important to have prophets, now a king. What they have to have for the people of God is a song leader. Who is going to stand up and lead us in song? Deuteronomy 31, verse 19 says, Now therefore write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. This is Moses speaking. Moses was the first great song leader. He demonstrated that he was the prophet of God. He demonstrated that he was God's son because the first thing he does after the Red Sea is compose a song that he teaches everyone. And at at the end of his life, he teaches them a song. There's another book, the book of the wars of Yahweh, which is mentioned in Numbers chapter 21. It's also a a, a book full of songs that that the people of Israel sang because that's how they responded, through through the... it was compiled earlier, after they had fought all these different battles. The people of Israel, after they won important battles, the first thing they did was have a song leader write songs about it. David is called the sweet psalmist of Israel in 2 Samuel 32. 1. The book of Psalms are known as David's treasury, not because he wrote them, but because the Davidic kingship was a sacral office. It's not just a political office. It's not just a military office. He has the ummum and the Thummim. He appeals to God, which we're going to see in chapter 2. But one of the primary functions is to lead Israel in song. If, if the people of God do not have someone leading them in song, they're, they're not properly the people of God. Davidic sons, kings, continue to commission and write their own songs. Solomon does it. Hezekiah does it. The apostles want us to recognize Jesus as the fulfillment of this liturgical office. See, what David is demonstrating is what the heart of Yahweh is like for his people. What the kind of king Israel ought to have and should have and will have. David is a type of the one to come, and the one to come is Jesus. And how did Jesus respond? What did Jesus do? Paul quotes Psalm 1849 in, in Romans 15, eight through nine. So what, what you see is you go into the apostles and you have these quotes where they're quoting from the Psalms in the New Testament. And in Romans, we read this, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised and to the Gentiles, that they might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. These... Prophetic utterances in the book of Psalms are fulfilled in Christ. Jesus didn't come just healing people. Jesus didn't come just turning uh, water into wine. He came and he sang. And he sang uh, in the house of the the Lord. He also sang amongst the Gentiles. That's partially how we know he is, in fact, the Messiah. Paul quoted Psalm 22, verse 22, again in Hebrews 2. See, he quotes another psalm that we thought was about David, but it turns out it's about the Messiah. And this is what it says. He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. He is not ashamed of the household of God. He's not ashamed to call you his brother. He's not ashamed to call you his sister. He's not ashamed to call us his people. And, And how do we know that he is the king? Because he stands in the midst of us and he sings. Right? This is why, right? there's only one option for David at this point, because he is the true king of Israel, and the true king of Israel sings, and the true king of Israel teaches the people of God to sing. Not only does he protect the household, and he does justice in the household, and, and he considers anyone who's anointed to be sacrosanct, he also sings over and, and teaches, to sing, uh, teaches the people of God to sing. This is how you know he is the true king of Israel. Now why? Why? Why, of all things? If you're going to be a military leader, if you're going to be a prophetic king, I mean, shouldn't he be really good at reading and memorizing? Right? Shouldn't he have, like, a photographic memory? Who's going to carry all those scrolls around? It seems to me if I was picking, like, hey, let's have a king who's going to lead us. How about he's able to read something one time, because right, God could have really made it anything. This seems good. How about a guy who never misses with a bow and arrow? That also seems like a helpful thing. He hits everything he shoots at. How about if we put those two things together? An awesome memory so he doesn't have to carry around all the scrolls. And he's really good at shooting bows and arrows. How about that? No. God says, no, my king will sing. My king will lead the people of God in song. Now, if you go to Zephaniah... Now, if I hadn't marked this out, I wouldn't have been able to find it here in the middle of this sermon. It took me a long time to find Zephaniah. I'll just tell you that right now. It's a very small book. It's not alphabetical the Old Testament. But this is what it says in Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 17. Zephaniah three seventeen. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now, doesn't that sound like David in, in 2 Samuel chapter 1? He's quieting the people of God through what? His love of the people of God. Jonathan, Jonathan's and Saul's. He's singing over the household of God. He's teaching them to sing. He's, he's demonstrating justice and mercy and kindness and love. Right? But I thought David was a killer. Right? I thought later on in 2 Samuel, God's going to describe him as a man of blood. Okay, well, we'll get to that. But before he's a man of blood, before he's known as that, we see this is the shepherd boy who was out in the wilderness, who no one but the Lord saw. That, who was, that is who was chosen to be the king in Israel. Why? Because he sounds like God. He sounds like this kind of king. The Lord your God is in your midst. He's not far away. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That is what the heart of the men and women of God ought to be like. You ought to quiet people with your love. You ought to sing over them. You ought to what, be one who saves, one who is devoted, one who is dedicated to the people of God. Now, the last thing I want to mention here. It's something that also, I mean, (laughs) it's it's sometimes hard to pick songs for a church. If you've never had to do it, it's actually really hard. Um, What do you base it on? Um, The other thing that I've struggled for years is, shouldn't it always be happy? Aren't we always supposed to be happy? Like, I'm not going to church, right? I'm not going to a funeral. Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. And what I like about what David does here is that what kind of song does he sing? And David lamented with this lamentation. And, and I've talked about this before when I talked about the book of Lamentations. This is an art form that we have lost. And, and, it's dim, and it's partially why our love for the household of God is so weak. Because we know how to rejoice with people who rejoice. I've been in this church now, what is it, 17 years, 16 years? I will, I will testify. We are a good example of people who know how to rejoice with those who rejoice. I think we've come a long way with as being people who weep with those who weep. But but this is an area that we can grow in, that the church in the United States can grow in, right? Because what do we want when we, when we hear worship songs? We want to hear that backbeat. We want to hear something peppy. We want to hear something upbeat. But what about, right, um, th- there's a church in Pennsylvania this week who lost their minister suddenly uh, three days ago. He, he died of a heart attack. Now, now, it, what, what I find is that what do you sing at that service you got a stand in preacher you're there in the household of God you're going before the Lord God just like we are here but, but I would find right. I imagine trying to pick the songs this week for that service and I wouldn't know where to begin now if the sun's out right, and we're going to celebrate Pentecost I know what songs to pick for that that's easy but lamentation is very difficult for us Lamentation is very difficult for us. We don't know how to do it. And, and what, what David is doing here is he's expressing his grief openly. He's writing what he thinks about what's going on. And, and, and it, there's an imprecatory nature to it a little bit. But also he's very poetic. I mean, he, he does a number of things. I, I want to point out some of them. One of the things that he does is, right, if you remember back, the Philistines went back rejoicing to their temples. And and the first thing he does is he wants to silence those who are rejoicing over the downfall of Israel. David says, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it in Gath. Publish it in the streets of Ascalon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the circumcised exult. The first thing that he wants to do is it's, it's imprecatory because he wants the worshiping of the pagans to cease. That's the first thing he wants. He talks about how the household of God is in dire straits. And the first thing he mentions is the worship of the pagans. Then he turns and he says something. He he curses the land. He says, you, mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. May you never know, do again. May you never be, and you know what's funny? They never mention that mountain again in the Bible. That's it. Because this is the king of Israel speaking on behalf of the people of God. And when he curses something, it's cursed indeed. Where two or three are gathered together, what we bind and loose is bound and loosened. What we curse is cursed. What we praise is praised by God. And and, And there is a real power to this that we do not understand. (laughs) Okay? <laughs> may the borders between Russia and Ukraine suddenly come alive with miry pits. That seems like a prayer that God might respond to. Now, might he not? Maybe. Because I don't know everything that's going on. But like, that's not usually how we think about praying, is it? May a vast chasm open up and swallow Washington, D.C., I said. Right? May, may certain places never know the, the sweetness of the dew. Like, that is, a, that is a man who knows God. That is a man who knows the power of God. And that is a powerful prayer. Then what he does is very poetic, because he equates the, the weapons of the men with the men themselves. And there's a lot of uh, stuff going on in the Hebrew here. Because what you would do when you're going into battle is you would anoint your shield. Because um, when somebody's trying to stab you, it actually, right, if it's covered in grease, it's a little slippier. Things are going to dodge off there a little faster, a little better. And so you have this anointed shield and shields are generally a metaphor for kings Saul is the shield of Israel and the the shield has fallen the shield has fallen he says from the blood of the slain from the fat of the mighty the bow of Jonathan turned not back and the sword of Saul returned not empty Saul and Jonathan beloved and lovely in life and death they were not divided that's interesting that's interesting we'll come back to that they were swifter than eagles they were stronger than lions Oh, I missed it. He says it up here. Okay. You, you mountains of Gaboah, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields or of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. So he's making this poetic um, comparison between the unanointed shield and the anointed of the Lord. The shield of Israel, which is Saul, has fallen. It's a physical shield has fallen and the person has fallen. And, and he expresses himself here beautifully. And does he save all of the beautiful things that he has to save for Jonathan, his friend? No, listen how he's describing this man who, who was his enemy. And were Jonathan and Saul divided in life? I read First Samuel. What does he mean? I think that that statement tells us a great deal more about Jonathan than anyone Given everything that was going on between Saul and Jonathan and David, his close friend says they weren't divided, means that somebody was not letting their differences divide them. And I don't think it was Saul. I don't think it was Saul. When the household of God is down for the count, when the mighty of Israel fall, what is your response how do you respond? What do you think of all those men out there who, who are preaching false doctrines, who are preaching things that they ought not to, right? All those people out there who are of compromise with paganism, all those men and women out there who have compromised with feminism and with the woke movement and with the social gospel, are they not of the household of God? Is that for us to decide? Now, should we just take whatever they do and whatever they say at face value and Just silently go along with it? No, because, and this is what, right, think about your spouse. If your spouse is in just unbelievable, ridiculous, high-handed sin, what's your responsibility in that case, right? Isn't the marriage covenant that you have part, part of the solution? So with everything that's wrong in the household of God, isn't this deep covenant based on the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, right, part of the solution? that unity that we have that wasn't created by us? Now, are there people in the household of God who need lamentation? Are there people in the household of God who are weeping, who need someone to come and weep with them, right? Do the people of God need a song leader? That is what, this is what, right? This is one of those sermons where you find out, like, what we're being told is all the things that we need to do to reform the church, We need to take our unity. We need to take the anointing of the Lord seriously. We need to love not only those people that we like, but those people that we don't like. We have got to consider how to express ourselves to the living God in a way that he recognizes. And what does he recognize? He recognizes people who are standing in his midst singing, people who are quieting one another with their love, people who are devoted to one another, irregardless of what they do. Is what we do determine how God is devoted to us or not. So in order to be more like him, shouldn't we be devoted to people irregardless of what they're doing or not doing? Right? C.S. Lewis said, you know, you're forgiving the unforgivable in others because the unforgivable has been forgiven in you. Right? That's what we're doing. We've received something that we did not deserve and we didn't earn. And so we should be people who are ones who are giving undeserved gifts that people didn't earn. This is not just a story about politics. David isn't Machiavellian. David isn't like you and I. This is why he's the king of Israel. This is why he's a foreshadow of Jesus. Right here, this is it. Now, he's going to get into some trouble later. Don't you worry. (laughs) Feet of clay. But right now, in this moment, this is the heart of God. Doesn't he love you, irregardless of what you do? Doesn't he sing over you? Doesn't he quiet you with his love? That is the kind of king, right? That's the kind of man, that's the kind of Christian, This kind of woman that reflects the love of God. It is, is seen right here in the first chapters of 2 Samuel. And, and if you want to study what, what, what love is, what unity is, what goodness is, what nobility and, and uprightness is in the household of God, these are the chapters for you. And, and we're going to go on because David isn't done yet. Next week we're going to come right back here and we're going to go on to see how he responds to this news. And he doesn't respond like us. He's not like us. And we need to be more like him. And that's why the Lord God has given us these chapters to study. Amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you for the ministry of David. Lord, we thank you um, for these words that are recorded of him, for this song that he has has written. We thank you for Jonathan and for Saul, Lord, and the lessons, good and bad, that we learn from their lives. We pray, Lord God, that as we go from here, that we would consider how to be um, committed and, and show love to your household, Lord, how to be devoted to the household of God in, in a deeper and, and more meaningful way. That you, I, I pray, God, that you would teach us how to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and to weep with those who are weeping. I pray, God, that we would not simply care about our own concerns and burdens, but that we would care about the care, uh, the concerns and burdens of the household of God. We thank you and we praise you, and amen.